Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. All right, we're good now? Yep, it's on. Is it on over there? Okay. We're going to try recording Sunday school for the benefit of those who can't be there. Uh, or here, sorry, can't be here. I don't know how well that's going to work since we do a lot of discussion and I'm the only one wearing a microphone, so there might be just a lot of awkward silence on the recording, but, but we'll give it a shot. It's just audio, so you don't have to worry about your face being out there. So, But all right, we've been in Genesis 6 last week and continuing this week talking about the flood. We settled everybody's questions about who the Nephilim are, right? We're going to move on from there. The sons of God and daughters of men. Um, a couple of things, I think, to reflect on from our, our discussion there is, is um, you know, the, the Westminster Confession talks about how not all things in Scripture are alike plain unto themselves. It's really fancy language to say some things in the Bible are more clear than others. Um, but it goes on to say anyone uh, studying scripture, right, with a, a due use of the ordinary means, right, which means you may have to work at it, but it's, it's written in such a way that everything you need to know for salvation is clearly laid out in one place or another if you apply yourself to understanding it. Um, but other things in Scripture, some are more clear, some are less clear. So the best way to come to understand them is by comparing one part of Scripture with another, that Scripture interprets itself. Uh, but that means that sometimes we're going to look at passages and, and we won't be able to answer our questions, right? Uh, we'll raise questions that we may not have the answer to. We may have to continue to ponder as we keep studying, and that's, that's okay. So, so along those lines, I think we can make a bargain, right? You can ask any question you want, as long as I can say, I don't know. <laughs> and then we'll keep moving on from there. So, All right, well, let's look at chapter 6. Uh, let's pick up at verse 9. And I think we kind of previewed this last week. Um, and I don't think we'll get through the whole thing. Uh, but let's, let's read all the way from 6, 9 to 8, um, probably 19. Maybe, maybe, let's go through the end of 8. Yeah. And that'll cover the whole narrative of the flood. It's a lot to read, so I don't think we'll make it all the way through in terms of our discussion this week. But, so Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, 
and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. All right. What do you notice? Or what do you remember from our earlier discussion? Yes, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Where do we see that? It is. So verse 8 of chapter 6, just before what we started to read, it said, uh, right, it's describing the Lord's decision, right? Uh, if we go back to verse 5, we probably should have read this too, sorry. So chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Good. We'll move some stuff out of the way here. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, what else does it say about Noah? Good. Yeah, so blameless, righteous, walked with God. That does sound like later descriptions we hear of Moses. Um, Does it sound like descriptions of anyone we've already read about here in Genesis? Sorry? Enoch. Enoch, yeah. Talking about Noah. Noah found favor. blameless. He walked with God. Think of Enoch. And we talked a little bit about that godly line in chapter 5, right? Um, Enoch, who walked with God and was not because God took him Enoch, whose son is Methuselah, who had the longest life. Uh, Methuselah's son, Lamech, who's Noah's father, who named Noah in hope that in Noah we'd have rest, and who himself had a fullness of years, 777 years. So there's this, this godly line all the way back to Seth, but especially these later generations which kind of reach their culmination in Noah who's described this way kind of echoes his fathers that he found favor he's blameless he walked with God did anybody else find favor with God what's God's assessment of humanity at this point everybody right says the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. What does that say about Noah's cousins? And presumably brothers and sisters. Or even his children, right? We have three specific children mentioned, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, And it's silent about whether he has other children. It seems on the basis of the other people being described, he probably did, because he's, he turns 500 and then he has these three children. And other people are having children between the ages of like 30 and 130. Uh, so presumably he may have had other children, maybe even grandchildren who don't make it onto the ark. And we asked that uh, last week, you know, like are there other people who made it on the ark who aren't mentioned? Uh, And in light of that comment I made at the beginning, right, that scripture helps us interpret scripture. Um, Looking for it. Second, that was second Peter, maybe it's first Peter. Never mind, I didn't find it. I thought I found it. (laughs) Yes. Scripture 
That's a good question. Yeah. Sorry, I found what I was looking. It's where I thought it was, but it's not. I was looking in First Peter, not Second Peter. That's why I didn't find it. So I'm sorry. Doing too many things at the same time. Okay, sorry. So Second Peter two, uh, verse five, commenting about Noah, commenting about this passage in Genesis six. Peter says, "If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness." with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So then we can point to that and say, no, right? The ones, men- the ones expressly mentioned in Genesis 6 through 9 are the only ones who make it through the flood. So, there. But Rose, back to you. What was your question? I'm sorry. That, that brings up a larger question about the flood, right? Were, were Noah's children righteous, or are they just saved because they're part of his household? I don't know. I mean, they are adults. They have wives at this point. Um, we don't know. Based on their behavior after the flood, at least some of them don't seem to be walking with God. So are they saved simply because they're part of Noah's household? Uh, that's that opens up a broader question. Does the flood, does the experience of the flood change the character of mankind? Because it's assessment, right? God's assessment of humanity as a whole before the flood uh, from chapter 6, verse 5, right, is that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What's God's assessment of humanity after the flood? Is it different? No, it's the same, right? He says at the end of chapter 8, right, um, verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Right? So that the fundamental assessment of the character of mankind has not changed. Right? The flood proclaimed judgment, but it didn't alter the heart of mankind. Something else is needed. Yeah, something else was needed. So, Rose. That's a good question, right? Why, why the flood if it doesn't change humanity? Um, So they're fewer in number, 
but their character hasn't changed, right? So, so why do we expect a different outcome? And this is part, I think, of why God promises not to destroy the world by a flood again, is because the things that led to the flood are still there. I think it does a couple of things. One is it points to the need for a change in the character of humanity, right? The need for a savior, the need for a savior, um, which God has to bring about, right? But it also points to judgment against sin, right? That sin begets judgment. Uh, it demonstrates that God is a righteous God. And so we can expect sin to be punished. He may choose not to punish it on the same scale, uh, which should lead us individually, I think, to be in terror uh, of God's judgment apart from a Savior, apart from some kind of fundamental change in our character. We talked a little bit last week about the nature of the judgment, right? What does the flood remind you of as we, as we walk through it, um, right? How does it come about? What happens? We have 40 days of rain, but how else is it described? Yeah, the boundaries set up in at least day two and day three are completely undone, right? Because what, if we think back at how creation was described, the first three days are primarily God separating, right? Day one, he separated the light from the darkness. Day two, he separated the waters below from the waters above. Day three, he separated the seas from the dry lands. And the flood undoes day three by undoing day two, right? The, the windows of the heavens are opened. So that division between the waters above and the waters below is undone. Uh, the fountains of the deep burst forth and all the high mountains are covered. So the division between the seas and the dry lands is undone. What about the division between light and darkness? Is that undone? If it's raining all the time, you can't see the sun, and they're shut up in the ark, right? At what point are they no longer shut up in the ark, right? Because it says when it starts to rain, I got to turn the page here, um, looking for the verse, right? Um, uh, at the end of verse 16, right after the rain has started, he again describes the contents of the ark and Noah's following of the instructions. And then it says, and the Lord shut him in. Right, the ark is sealed from the outside by the hand of God. And at what point is it unsealed? Yeah, when he sends out a bird, right? 
chapter 8, verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. So for 40 days, they're actually shut up in the ark. I don't know if they had flashlights or... We could get into all kinds of questions, actually, about how far human technology had progressed before the flood and how much was lost um, because of the flood. So I don't know what kind of lighting they may have had in the ark, but they are sealed inside the ark, and so they are in darkness for those 40 days as well. Uh, I can't imagine what that would have been like. So arguably, all of those divisions set up in day one and day two and day three are undone uh, in the flood. So it's a, it's a decreation, and then this emerging from the flood is a recreation as the windows of the heavens are closed and as the, mount, the tops of the mountains begin to be seen and then as the window of the ark is opened. But it takes very much longer, Right? Creation in Genesis 1 takes six days, right? And I know we have lots of arguments about the nature of those days, but, but the description is it's six days, right? And those boundaries in particular, they're set up over the course of three days. Um, but we've got rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but it's, it's a whole year from when the rain starts to when they actually disembark from the ark. So the, the process of recreation after the flood takes much longer. What else do you see? Yeah, yeah. So the, so the Lord shuts them in and then they stay in the ark and then even when they open up the ark, they can see the dry land, but they wait on the Lord's command. Uh, I wish Randy was here this morning, right? Uh, I think especially here in South Louisiana, we all have enough experience to know that just because we can't see the water anymore doesn't mean the ground is dry. So there's a practical side of this. They stay in the ark even though the waters have abated. But also, as you described it, they're, they're waiting on the Lord's command. Good. Uh, in the part of Oklahoma that I come from, there are lots of actually underground rivers. Uh, so quicksand is never as much of a problem as you think it was from the movies and cartoons you see growing up. But it is a problem around the Oklahoma City area because there are large aquifers where, like the Canadian River, there's very, very little water above ground most of the time, uh, but there's a lot of water underground. So I don't know. Maybe that's a part of why God 
waits with him on the ark. I'm sorry, someone was starting to speak over here. Was it you, Mr. Clyde? Yeah, why does Noah wait seven days in between his sending out of the dove? Yep, I don't know. Well, and I, is... I, I yes, sir. And what about the raven, right? Because he sent forth the raven and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up. So did it just keep circling? Or did it land on top of the ark and then go more? Like he doesn't seem to continue to interact with the raven. I guess just one day he doesn't see it anymore. Yeah. 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 Apparently the wa- the birds had no place to land for the better part of a year, so they perished too. There's something interesting about that even now, um, um, about the animals seeming to be, to hear and listen to God's voice um, better than we do. Uh, people have studied animals around the times of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, and the animals seem to know. Uh, and they leave the area uh, or get really on edge. And then, and then an earthquake happens, things like that. So. Sometimes we think it's just figurative um, when the Psalms or other parts of Scripture talk about the whole creation giving God praise, but they, the creatures, the creation seems to know his voice better than we do at times. Yes, sir. Yeah, so also there at the end of chapter 6, that storing up every kind of food, which then implies the preservation of seed for crops also. We, uh, it's an, I like science fiction. I don't know if you guys do or not, but, but a lot of science fiction writers will wrestle with things like we think about in relation to the ark with, with interstellar travel, right? 
uh, or facing the idea of a nuclear winter or apocalypse, right? How are we going to save seeds so that we have food, right, after we're able to reemerge? Or how are we going to be able to make it, you know, so many light years across the universe? Um, how are we going to support human life on the ship between here and there, right? Whether we put people into some kind of stasis or whether we just plan for, you know, the 11th or 12th generation after those who actually board the ship to be the ones who disembark. Uh, but it's interesting the way God has provided for Noah and his family in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're able to eat the whole time. Um, I was reading through Leviticus earlier in the week, and it, it deals with a similar question because they're supposed to give the land rest every seventh year. And, and God anticipates that people are going to be like, okay, but what are we going to eat? Uh, and he promises that in the sixth year, he'll bless the crop so that it produces enough for three years. Uh, so that they can eat in that sixth year, they can eat in that seventh year, and they can eat the year after. They'll have enough food and enough seed that they can sow the land and they'll be able to eat until the, the crops come in from that year. Yeah. God anticipates the kinds of things that we forget about. So if after the flood, right, God in judgment has wiped out um, evil humanity, we've already pointed out the way God recognizes that the fundamental character of humanity hasn't changed, hasn't been altered by the flood. Well, how, how are things going to go after this? Actually, before we go there, just make a couple of comments that, um, as we mentioned before, like other cultures outside of ancient Israel also remember this flood. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which comes from elsewhere in the ancient Near East and is older than a lot of the Old Testament, um, there's a I won't go into too much detail, but there's a king who wants to live forever. Um, and so he goes, or wants his friend to live forever. After his friend has died, he wants an answer to the question of immortality. And so he travels a great distance to find the man who survived the flood, Utnapishtim, and asks him about the flood. And, and so there's a remembrance that there was this flood, that the gods chose to destroy humanity through a flood that over the course of the flood and in coming out of the flood, he sent out birds to try and determine when uh, the land was safe to disembark from the ark. So that there's not just a general memory of some devastating flood, but actually some memory of specific details of what's recorded in Genesis that survive in other cultures. Um, some people look at that kind of phenomenon and they say, well, 
Genesis is made up because Moses was familiar with these other stories and so he pieced together something that he made up off the, off the top of his head based on these other things he's familiar with. And C.S. Lewis makes a really good point that actually, if these things are true, we should expect that in other cultures outside Israel, far removed from the people of God, there would still remain, though distorted, memories of these two things that happened. And that's, that's in fact what we find as we look at other ancient literature. So, so it shouldn't surprise us then that we find memories of the description of creation, though distorted in other cultures, memories of the flood, but distorted, memories of the Tower of Babel, even, though distorted in other cultures. So, All right, ready for chapter nine? It's gonna get better from here, right? Right? Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a great comment. Um, many of you probably know who he was, right? Uh, he was a, a Russian, he was a, a communist for, for a while, um, like convinced communist. He was serving on, in World War II and criticized um, some Soviet policy in a letter he wrote to a friend of his, and so he was put into prison. Uh, and then was in the gulag for a long time and wrote about it. Uh, and he, he reckons with the evil of humanity in a lot of his writings. And he makes a comment about evil that uh, if only, I, I'll, I'll butcher the quote, uh, but the gist of it is, if only it were possible to just identify the evil people and get rid of them, right? Uh, but the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And who is willing to cut out a piece of his own heart? So I'll have to find the, the details of the specific quote and bring that to you guys. But in that light, let's look at chapter 9. I think we can read through it and observe some things, but leave the discussion of most of it for next week, probably. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature 
that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. All right. So are things looking up? Not particularly. Not particularly. What is Noah instructed to do after the flood? To be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply. Yep. Uh, increase greatly on the earth and multiply. Right, chapter nine, verse seven. Yep. What else do we see? Well, not that are mentioned. Yeah, did Noah have other children after the flood? We don't know. Because right, we only get, we get a very select number of names. Right? So we don't know who else there was. We don't know if Noah bore additional children after the flood or if it's only his sons who bore additional children after the flood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his three sons are mentioned once more. Yeah, he's 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 pretty old. 
at this point as well. Yeah, but he lives 350 more years. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's a question about chapter nine, right? Did people eat animals before the mention of them being expressly given as food in chapter nine? Um, some say no, because there's no mention but prior to this of them being given for food. But in the description of the animals Moses is or sorry, Noah is supposed to collect, he's supposed to collect seven pairs of the clean animals. And that distinction has primarily to do with both which animals they can eat and which animals can be offered as sacrifices. And as early as Cain and Abel, Abel offers an animal sacrifice and is raising livestock. And we think of an animal sacrifice in terms of a whole burnt offering, but typically an animal sacrifice meant the animal was slaughtered, part of the animal was burned on the altar, and the rest of the animal was consumed by the priest or the one bringing the offering or both. So the, the existence of animal offerings as early as Cain and Abel seems to suggest that they're already eating animals, even though that's not mentioned. They're not mentioned as being given as food until we get here. That's another question. Yeah, because he says, yeah. Because the way it's phrased, does that mean there aren't any unclean animals? Because he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Well, certainly not true later. Right? We read the Levitical laws, although it's true much later. Uh, when Jesus declares all things clean, Mark comments. When uh, Peter gets the vision in Acts 9. Uh, of course, that relates to his bringing the gospel to Cornelius, but it doesn't not include food. So... What about Noah's sons? And what about the bow in the clouds? A couple of talking points. Did, were rainbows a thing before the flood? Did they happen before the flood? Yeah, so rainbows are a, are a physical phenomenon that happens because of rain. So if there was no rain before the flood, then it would make sense that there are no rainbows before the flood. Although it's not entirely dependent on rain. It can happen because of cloud cover. Um, 
But just because rain is mentioned in a particular way because of the flood doesn't mean it didn't rain before the flood. In the same way that, right, Adam and Eve's daughters are not mentioned, but clearly they had some. Otherwise, Cain and Abel couldn't have, uh, and Seth couldn't have had children. So, so it may be that there weren't rainbows before the flood. Or it may be that the rainbow doesn't have, it's not assigned a specific significance until after the flood. God's able to point to this natural, frequently occurring phenomenon and say, let this be a reminder to you and to me of this covenant that I'm making with you now. So two ways of looking at that. One is rainbows didn't occur until God created them here. Or rainbows occurred all the time, but they didn't have the significance God gave them until this point. Yes. Yes. So that opens up a whole discussion that we might pause and talk about before moving forward is, is what's going on here with a covenant. Because Moses describes things in terms that he's, he's talking about some things, not talking about others, because he expects his audience to know what's involved in a covenant. Uh, which leads us to ask, well, what is involved in a covenant, right? Uh, there's a sign here, and here the sign is what? Rainbow. Rainbow. There are parties to the covenant, right? And there are different kinds of covenants, right? But it involves at least one party making promises and oaths to another, which means there's also a promise Sometimes there are conditions. So that one of the questions we can ask anytime we see a covenant or expect or, or suspect that there is a covenant at work in what we're reading is with whom is the covenant made? What is the covenant sign? And if it's applied to someone, to whom is that sign applied? And together with that, who are the expected heirs of the covenant? Because it may be made with people who are present, but it's expected to continue in force uh, and be applied to others. Rose? Yeah, and there's often this, well, yeah. So there's often a sacrifice associated with a covenant and um, I just escaped. There's something else. I forgot what it was. So there's often a sacrifice, or together with a sacrifice, a meal, a covenant meal, oh, and a mediator. There's often someone who mediates between the parties of the covenant. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Yeah, so here it says that he, well, in the last verse of that section, yeah, uh, yeah, and 17 as well, he says, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So 13, it mentions, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Yeah. And then between me and the earth, right? That was verse 12, verse 13. And then verse 17. Okay. It'll come up again if we keep going with Abraham. Yes, sir. No, no, go ahead. a good question. Yeah, so verse 11, um, there shall, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature to all generations. Um, verse 13, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So does that involve the land itself? It clearly involves not just people, but all the other living creatures. But does it also include the land itself? That's a good question. I don't have the answer for that off the top of my head. Yeah. 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 This is one of the, that's a really good comment about we are familiar with the phenomenon of devastating floods. And one of the questions about this passage is, is this a local flood versus a global flood, right? Was this confined to an extremely large area, but like confined to the Middle East, right? So it's a flood that happened in the Fertile Crescent specifically. Or is this a flood that covered the entire earth? Well, to be blunt, right? If it's a local flood, then God's comments here are a lie. Right? Uh, now, we could back off of that and say, well, it could have been a local flood that affected the entirety of humanity because humanity's locally confined at this point and so but but it would seem to me that that doesn't fit with a number of details of the passage um, but we are familiar with large-scale devastating floods that affect huge geographic regions whole nations um, those certainly continue to occur but a flood on this scale where the tops of, the, of all the mountains are covered 15 cubits deep is not something we've ever seen. So. Nobody wants to talk about Ham and Canaan and why Canaan's cursed instead of Ham. We'll leave that for next week.
So, all right, why don't we pray and get some more coffee. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise uh, that you will not destroy the world again by a flood. Thank you for the provision of a Savior to address what is wrong deeply within us, or the way that sin and its entrance into the world has affected our mind and our soul, as well as our outward actions. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is at work in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would continue to illumine our hearts and our minds as we study your word. That as we continue to engage with the scriptures, we would glean from them a deeper understanding of who you are and the wonder of your mercy and love toward us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.